0: So are you familiar with the game uh, called Calling Shotgun? And I, I, We're in the deep south, and so I'm not talking about a shotgun, an uh, actual gun, but calling shotgun, where well, you're, you're claiming the best seat in the car. Some head nods? All right, so a lot of you are. It's, it's pretty much a universal game, and so it's very simple if you've never played shotgun. You say shotgun, and you call the best seat in the car. You call the passenger front seat. Um, and what shouldn't maybe come as a surprise, kind of surprised me this week as I was actually kind of, I think I Googled calling shotgun or something the game. And there's an entire website dedicated to this game. And so if you've never played, uh, whether you like it or not, I'm going to go through a couple rules here. I want to put them on the screen so we can all get on the same page of what it looks like to, to call shotgun. All right. So here's some rules of, of this game that I found on this website. Uh, number one, pretty simple, you must say the word shotgun. Uh, and they clarify that it's got to be clear. It's got to be loud enough so that everyone in your party can hear. So you can't say shotgun. You can't say it under your breath. It's got to be loud enough so that everyone can hear shotgun so that they know you claimed the front seat in the car. Uh, The second thing is, and this looks a little confusing, but I'll explain it. The deed must be done before shotgun may be called. All right? So that means whatever your party is doing has to be done first. So if you go to the movie, the movie has to be completed. The deed must be done before you can call shotgun. All right, it can't be in the middle. of. If you go to the church service, you can't call it right now for the way home. You got to wait until the deed is done. The service is over before you can call shotgun. Everyone on the same page so far? All right, you didn't know you'd learn about this game at church today. Number three, you must be outside to call shotgun. So that goes with number two. So you can't call it in the church service, but once you, the church service is done, the deed is done and outside, then shotgun is in play, all right? So it's got to be outside, not inside. If you break any of these rules... Number four goes into effect, voiding, which means you are voided from playing shotgun. If you say it too softly, inside, before the deed is done, you are voided from playing shotgun. The rest of your party can still play. Now, the last thing is, is duration, which means that when you call shotgun, it lasts only for one trip and one destination only. All right. So when the deed is done, then shotgun is in play again. Now, if you want to play, you're welcome. You can, you can play after, after we leave church today. Feel free to do that. Uh, there were a lot of other rules I found. It's, it's shocking how many rules that somebody made up or whoever created this website made up. Uh, some of my favorites were uh, moms always get shotgun. I like that. Uh, one I found too was, was hitchhikers can never call shotgun. <laughs> Is that just like if like I was I was just imagining like picking someone up on the side of the road and they're like shotgun and they call it <laughs> that cracks me up uh, the purpose of the game is really simple right it's it's a, it's a clear thing we are calling shotgun because we are claiming the best seat in the car we want everyone else is jammed in the back right we want the best seat we are claiming it it is ours no matter what happens that is our seat and so for the last few weeks we've been going through this series called reclaim. And what we want you to see is is what it looks like to be claimed by God. And you see, as followers of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus and you claim to be, we have been claimed by God. You see, God has called, in a sense, shotgun on you. He has claimed you. He has said your name. So you and I have been claimed by God. We are sons and daughters of God. We are his people. And no matter what happens in the journey of life, God continues to claim you. You see, we lose sight of that, don't we, at times? We lose sight of the fact that God has has personally called shotgun on our lives. He's personally claimed our name. He's personally said your name. And maybe it's some, you fill in the blank, maybe it's some failure, maybe it's some sin. Maybe just God has appeared silent at some points in your life, and, and you lose sight of that perspective that God has personally claimed you. And you see, when we are in these difficult times and when we're in these times where we don't necessarily see God and and see that he claims us, sometimes we feel like exiles. And so throughout this series, what we want to reestablish for you is that God continues to claim you. God continues to claim his people. He will continue to call your name. And so last week we looked at this idea of what grace is. And Mike talked about how God always promises grace no matter what. So part of being claimed by God is he's saying, look, I call your name and I am offering grace no matter what. I'm offering love no matter what. And so in response to that, in response to that grace, then this week and then all of the following weeks to complete this series, we're going to look at what it means to respond to that grace and how it changes then our lives. Because in response to grace, our lives, they should be different, shouldn't they? I mean, after all, if we are followers of Christ, we have the spirit of God living within us. And so, man, our lives should be different. They should be changed because of what God has done for us. And so today we're going to start in Ezra chapter 1, if you're following along in your Bibles, if you want to go ahead and flip there, Ezra chapter 1. We've been in Ezra 1 for a couple of weeks, and we're just kind of pulling out different truths if you've been with us for the first two weeks. Ezra 1, we're going to be in chapter 5 and 7 as well, if you have lots of bookmarks you want to pull out of your pocket or something, in Ezra 1, 5, and 7 is where we're all going to be. So as we unravel the story of Ezra, though, again, I want you to hear that, is, is look how God is reclaiming his people, as these people... Within Ezra, as the people of God, thousands of years ago, as they felt like exiles, as they were far from God, as they were in this difficult time, look how God reclaims them. And so, Ezra is kind of an unfamiliar book, isn't it? For, for, I think for most of us, when, when we say Ezra, maybe, maybe literally nothing comes to mind as far as the story goes. Um, and so, each week, we really want to kind of reestablish where we are in the story. And so, we are very intentionally kind of telling the story each time to make sure we're all on the same page. Uh, if, if you missed out on week one, I wanted to mention, make sure you check that out. Uh, Mike really laid out the, the entire foundation of this series, um, and it'll really be helpful, especially if you're new to church or new to faith, to really get that foundation of where we are in the Old Testament story. And so this morning, I, I will catch us up uh, as best as I can in only a few minutes here of where we are in this story. Uh, so you might be familiar with the Exodus, right? That is, that is a very common story in the Bible. Uh, the Exodus is God's people. They were enslaved within Egypt. There's a man named Moses that comes and he rescues the people. We have the plagues, you know, we have the parting of the sea. It's a very famous biblical story. In Ezra, we have something that's kind of similar to what that that was. You see, God's people, they they were in rebellion. They had been rebelling against God for many, many years. And so God allowed a group called, not the Egyptians, but now the Babylonians to come in and enslave God's people. And so they come in in the 6th century B.C., and 586 B.C., and they come in and they sack Jerusalem, and they destroy the temple, and they destroy the walls, and they take a lot of God's people back with them, then to Babylon. And so God's people spend the next 70 years in Babylon as slaves people. Now, that's a long time, isn't it? I mean, 70 years, when you think that's pretty much a lifetime. Uh, I was thinking about you know, spending that, that amount of time away from home. It, it's crazy to think about that. Sarah and I, a couple weeks ago, we went to the marriage retreat with, with some of you guys as well, and we went up to uh, Fort Mountain. We had a, had a great time. We spent two nights in Fort Mountain, and then Sarah and I, we, we stopped for kind of a halfway point because we had Ann with us, and so it's just kind of easier to break up the trip, and so we, we stopped at a halfway point in Atlanta on the way home. So we spent three nights away from home. We were ready to be home after three nights, and I'm not sure if that's just getting old because we, we were just like, man, I, I can't wait to get, like, in my bed, you know, I can't wait to, to be back home just to our pillows, you know, in my house. And w- we stayed in, in, in what we found out to be a, a not-so-great part of Atlanta. Uh, there was, uh, you know, trains and airplanes were right by the zoo. And uh, as we're leaving, we find out we're like two blocks from the federal prison. And so we're like, you know, I can't wait to be home away from a prison, you know, and, and just the quietness of our little country house in Brooklyn. So you know that if you've been away from home for a while, like, you get kind of homesick. Um, 70 years is a long time from home. And maybe at that point, Babylon has kind of become their home. So finally, at this point in the story, after 70 years, there's a group called the Persians that come along. And as you know, world powers kind of rise and fall throughout history. Uh, The Persians come along and they take over from Babylon and they destroy, pretty much Babylon. And so they take over all of the people that Babylon has then enslaved. And so instead of keeping them slaves, the Persians and King Cyrus, they decide we're going to send these people back to where they were from. And so that includes God's people. You know, it's a lot of other people, but that includes God's people. So then they are sent back to Jerusalem. And so this happens over like a hundred year period. Look, we don't, we don't really have airplanes right at this time. We don't have vehicles. And so it takes a long time to move back across these geographical regions. So it, it takes about a hundred years in three different waves of what I'm calling deportation. Are you all still tracking with me? All right. Uh, so historically, sometimes there's a lot of details here. And so the first wave is by a guy named uh, Zerubbabel. I don't want to put that on the screen. Zerubbabel. Um, maybe. There it goes. Um, so this wave, uh, it happens in, in the first half of the book of Ezra. So when we read Ezra, the first wave of deportation is, is through Zerubbabel. The second half is through a guy named, as you might imagine, Ezra. Nehemiah takes the third wave. And so we have three waves of deportation between Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, within about hundred years after the Persians take over from Babylon, y'all, y'all there? All right. Now that we're on the same page, um, we want to get into another little part here because, see, what happens is, is when they arrive back in Jerusalem, when they arrive back in Judah, this first wave through Zerubbabel, you know, they encounter a scene that it's kind of destruction, right? Like they're they're returning home. But, it, but it's rubble. You know, the, the walls have been destroyed, the temple has been destroyed, and there's a lot of rebuilding to do. Uh, September 11th, 2001, it's a date when you just mention it, you know what that is. Uh, you, you put yourself where you were, you put yourself what you were doing, right? You remember very much that date, especially if you're old enough to remember that. But it's not really that day I, I want to focus on, and, and you'll see why I mention this date, but it, it's the days and the weeks and the months and the, and the years that followed, See, a lot of you probably watched the news after that day, and you watched what became known as uh, Ground Zero. And we watched as, as rescuers came in, you know, trying to pull out survivors those first few days. And we watched as people came in then and started clearing out all of the debris that was left over from the plane's attacks. And I read this week that there was 1.8 billion tons of concrete and steel that they had to move from Ground Zero. And it took what, what I think is a shockingly little amount of time to remove all this debris, because about nine months later, on May 30th, 2002, the last support beam was removed. And maybe you watched that ceremony as they did that on TV. It was a big thing that, yeah, we finally you know, cleared this, and now it's ready to be built. And so for the next several years, uh, architects, engineers, city planners, they discussed what would now be built on ground zero. And there was a lot of delays. A lot of people disagreed on what should be built. They wanted the city to have something that they could use, but they wanted to honor the victims as well. And so you can imagine how, how the emotions and just the tragedy of that event obviously just it clouds people's visions, and we don't really know exactly what to do. And so 2005, three years later, I want you to see this picture is not a lot really had happened. You know, like almost four years later, they've cleared all the debris, and, and they hadn't really built much there yet. And so finally in 2006, progress was made. Uh, people finally approved some plans for what became known as Freedom Tower. The memorials started to be constructed. And in 2009, here's the progress. And you can kind of see Freedom Tower was a little bit in the background. And then on the 10-year anniversary uh, of 2000, uh, that is September 11th, 2011, uh, the memorial then was officially opened. And Has anyone been there to see the memorial? Okay. Um, i had the i'll say the privilege of seeing the towers before the attack, and I was actually on the towers on or in two thousand and one, which is just kind of a, a weird kind of thing to think about and Then I saw the memorials about fifteen years later and, and, and they 're beautiful it 's a somber place, but, but it's, it 's it's beautiful and then in two thousand and fourteen, Freedom Tower uh, was finished and it 's been kind of incredible to me to follow this story because even seventeen years later, after the attack after we saw the initial parts of ground zero and the rubble and everything that happened to see what it is now and to see, though, that they are continuing to rebuild. And I tell you that story because I think it's a very real image for you because you saw it and you saw maybe the path and you saw everything happening and you saw the news because I think the people of God experienced something very similar. You see, when they returned home, when they returned back to Jerusalem, they found something very similar to what was their ground zero. There were victims left there was rubble, there was destruction. You see, an enemy had attacked them, the Babylonians had come in, and they had left destruction, and they had to rebuild. And so they were struggling through that process of, of rebuilding buildings, but also rebuilding spiritually their lives, and wondering what it meant to now be claimed by God. Because these people have been pushed around for a long time, hadn't they? And when you think about the Egyptians, and then the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and now the Persians, they are our powers, they are authorities that are just pretty much pushing the people of God around. And so in their minds, you have to imagine they were thinking, what does it mean for God to claim us? What does it mean to really be God's people? I mean, we're just getting pushed around all the time. What does it mean for the God of heavens, the all-powerful, sovereign God, to claim us? You see, and I want to put this on the screen because I think it's a truth that they begin to realize, and it's one that we need to live by as well, which is this. When the powers and the leaders of the world seem overwhelming. And it had to for them. As I mentioned, all of these leaders constantly pushing them around, enslaving them, pushing them to other directions. When the powers and the leaders of the world seem overwhelming, we must remember that we have a sovereign, all-powerful God who personally claims us. As I said, who personally claims you, has said your name. And so maybe it's a little bit different for us as Americans when we think about the powers and the leaders of the world, but at times they can seem overwhelming, can't they? And we have to remember that we have a sovereign, all-powerful God who claims us. And it looks like that should change the way that we view the world, shouldn't it? If we believe that we have a God on top that is all-powerful, that is sovereign, it should change the way that we look at the president. It should change the way that we view politics, that we view these senators. It should fundamentally change it if we believe that God has dominion and power over all of them. And so I want to see how God kind of reveals that truth for the people in Ezra. And so look at Ezra chapter 1. Uh, We're going to start in verse 1. We've been in chapter 1 for most of these uh, first two messages, but I want to read a little little bit in chapter 1 before we move on to 5 and 7. So 1-1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it into writing. So Mike mentioned in the first two messages to remember that Cyrus is not a believer, right? Some of you remember him saying that. He, he is not a believer. And so God inspires Cyrus, though. Some of the other translations say that God stirred the heart of Cyrus. He inspires him. And so what you have to imagine here is that God is not physically possessing Cyrus to do what he wants. All right? He's not taking over his body, and Cyrus is like, oh, what happened? God is simply inspiring. He is nudging. You've probably felt those nudges before, haven't you? Maybe you felt the inspiration from God, and maybe God is is calling you to say something. You know, maybe God has been calling you to do something, to act in some way, to speak in his behalf. This, I think, is what God is doing to Cyrus, which is very interesting that he's not a believer, he's a non-believer, but yet God inspires Cyrus, he nudges him. Uh, Verse 2, here in chapter 1, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, "'The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth,' And he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. And any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and now free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. And so what's happening here is Cyrus, the most powerful man on the earth. The most powerful man on the earth is helping the people of God. He's inspired by God to begin rebuilding Jerusalem, rebuilding the city. And I feel like he almost goes above and beyond here, right? I mean, he's providing gold. He's providing money. He's providing the means to do it. And so that's the first king that we see, King Cyrus. If we skip ahead years and years and years, there's been other kings that have been reigning. And now there's a king named Darius. And so this is going to be chapter 5 if you want to get your place in Ezra chapter 5. And so years go by. And they begin rebuilding the area, right? Zerubbabel and all the Jews, they have moved over to Judah. They are rebuilding. And King Darius is now reigning. And what's happening is that there's neighboring people that are beginning to just kind of be mad at what's going on. We don't know all the details, really, if you kind of read what's going on in Ezra. But they're, they're kind, of, kind of perturbed. They're complaining at what's going on. And so they report to the Persians, look, you need to stop what they're doing. So the Persians come and they go to Jerusalem and they, and they look at all the rebuilding process. And then they send a letter back to Darius, Alright, So there's a lot of back and forth here, but they send a letter back to Darius to tell him what's happening. So Ezra chapter 5, uh, verses 8 through 12. So again, the Persians are reporting to Darius, the king should know that we went to the district of Judah, to the temple of the great God, the people who are building it with large stones and placing the timbers in the walls. The work is being carried on with diligence and is making rapid progress under the direction. It's very matter of a fact here, isn't it? We questioned the elders and asked them, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and to finish it? We also asked them their names, so that we could write down the names of the leaders for your information. Again, they're just kind of categorizing this report here for Darius. This is the answer they gave us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, one that a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our ancestors angered the God of heaven... And he gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldean, the king of Babylon, who destroyed the temple and deported the people back to Babylon. We could keep on reading, but that would be tedious, I think, to read this right now. Uh, but this is a letter they're sending back to Darius. And in a sense, they're saying, here's what the people are reporting. They're saying they have the authority, they say they're allowed to do this. What do we do? And so what happens is, is King Darius is all right, like, all right, this is before computers, right? This is before electronic filing. This is way before that. And so they, they start to look in the archives and try to find this thing that Cyrus had ruled. So again, this is years years and years kind of apart to where like, Darius doesn't really know everything that Cyrus has done. And so they're digging in the archives, and I'm imagining just like dust flying everywhere and scrolls and parchments and things like that. And so they're digging in the archives, and they find this thing that Cyrus had ruled, so Darius has two choices at this point. He is king. He's the most powerful man on the earth. He could do whatever he wants. He could continue to allow the people in Jerusalem to build, or he could do his own thing and think, you know, they're causing problems. Let's just stop what they're doing. Again, God inspires in this situation. And Darius, again, one of the most powerful man, men in the world, allows the people of Judah here to build the temple. And he actually gives them money, and he actually encourages it, and actually helps them along The journey. One last man I want to talk about. More years go by. King Darius is now gone. He's dead. More kings have risen up. And there's a guy named Artaxerxes, which is just a fantastic name, I just think, when I read that. Artaxerxes. If you're going to be a king, might as well be called that. And he sends a letter to a priest named, this guy should be familiar, Ezra. And so now this gets into the second wave that I talked about, the second wave of deportation here from Babylon to Jerusalem, or what was Babylon. All right. One last part I want to read here in Ezra chapter seven. So Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, teacher of the law of the, or that is of the law of the God of heaven, greetings. Now I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites who volunteer to go to Jerusalem with you may go. You are sent by the king and his seven advisors to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Moreover, You are to take with you the silver and the gold that the king and his advisors have freely given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. And so there's a lot more going on in this letter, again, that we're not going to read. But essentially what's happening is is King Artaxerxes is sending Ezra and the next wave of Jews back to Jerusalem to help establish the law, to help establish the religion. And I don't know about you, but can you see God's influence? And this is why I want to paint the pictures kind of quickly of these kings, of King Cyrus, of King Darius, of King Artaxerxes. Can you see God's sovereignty in this? Can you see his authority happening within the three most powerful men at the time, how God's fingerprints are on this story? And I don't know if you know the Persian Empire, but the Persian Empire stretched from Africa to China. I mean, this thing was massive. And these three most powerful men in the world decide to help a small tribe of people in a very small geographical region of their empire. I mean, if that's not God working, I don't know what is. God's sovereignty runs through this story. His power runs through the story through these men that you would never expect him to use. And what we have to realize is that his power and authority See, God doesn't not just use his own people. I think sometimes we think that, that God maybe just uses his, his believers. He uses the people that worship it. No, God uses anyone. He is not constrained to any box or any locality. God is above that. God has dominion and authority over everyone, and God will do what he pleases. And so sometimes, you see, God uses the most unlikely people to serve his purposes, Sometimes God uses the most unlikely people we would never expect and inspires them. Many of you have probably seen the movie Schindler's List. Uh, if, if you look at the top you know, five, top ten movies of all time, a lot of times Schindler's List will be in that list. And it follows uh, a guy named Oskar Schindler. Oskar Schindler was a, a German business owner during World War II, during the Nazi regime there in Germany. And Oskar Schindler decides to to basically use what's happening there with the Nazis and with their rulings to his benefit. And so he, he, he brings a lot of the Jews into his factory to work for him. And, and, it, and initially, it's only for his profit. Initially, it's only just to increase his margins, and he becomes a wealthy man because the Jews are cheap than labor, and he uses them in their factory. As the movie goes on, he begins to build relationships with the people there in the factory, and where his heart was maybe just to him, In the initial parts of the movie, it changes, and he begins to really feel for these men and women. And so he starts to use his influence, and he starts to use his wealth to save, then, the lives of the Jews. And it's an incredible scene here at the end of the movie I want you to check out as he's talking with some of these people that were in his factory. Let's check this out. We have written a letter, trying to explain things, in case you were captured. Every worker has signed it. It says whoever saves one life, saves the world entire. If I made more money <laughs> I <laughs> threw away so much money. <laughs> you have no idea if I just... will be generations because of what you did. I didn't do enough. You did so much. to this powerful German businessman, right, member of the Nazi party, saved lives of hundreds of Jews. Uh, The most unlikely person uh, was used to change history. So I want to ask you a question, and we're going to put this on the screen as well, which is when we're starting to look at this for our lives, who are the most unlikely people in your life that you have deemed unusable by God? I think a lot of us have people like that, and they might not be people that are close to us. You know, maybe it is a Cyrus, it is a Darius, it is an Artaxerxes. And often this comes in the form of a leader. It comes in the form of a political leader, a boss, an authority in some way, a politician, someone we just maybe definitely disagree with and we don't like that much. Who are these people that you have deemed unusable by God? Here's the thing. If the reality is, right, if we are claimed people, if we are claimed by God, that is, we are sons and daughters of God, we are followers of Jesus Christ, we must see every person under the love and the sovereignty of God. We got to see every person under the love and sovereignty of God. And when that happens, it means that every single person matters, and every person is likely to be used by God, not unlikely. So if you're looking at that and you struggle with that, maybe, and you maybe have people in your mind that you've deemed unusable, maybe it's politicians, maybe it's some senator or maybe some person in the house, maybe it's the president, whatever, and you have these people in your mind that you have deemed unusable, that you have deemed that God will not be able to use, I want to ask you a couple of things, which is, first off, where is God in your life? And the very kind of basic part of it, where is God? Is God just something that you do or is God the thing that you do? Because You see, as claimed people, we must keep God at the top. And I think when we don't keep God at the top, that is when our perspective skews. That is when we don't see God as being an authority over these people. You know, and it's so easy to think sometimes that God somehow aligns in some way with, with us. Maybe, maybe God is American, we think. Like, I mean, God's not American. You know that, right? <laughs> All right I'm glad you laugh. Uh, we think maybe God is Republican, He's not, I promise you. We think God is Democrat. He is not, I promise you. God is God. God is simply above all of that stuff. God has dominion. He has authority. He has sovereignty over all of these things. And see, what happens when God is not the thing in our life, God is not the top thing in our life, God is just something, then these things tend to line up with God. God is above all of those things. And when we have the correct perspective, when God is above and God has sovereignty over all, then we realize that no person is unusable by God. We realize that no person is unlikely to be used. That the Cyruses, that the Dariuses, that the Artaxerxes, that our presidents, that our senators, no matter who they are, what party they come from, God can use them. Because God has sovereignty and authority over all. You know, I think the other reason we struggle with this, and this is not a huge point, but we simply don't pray enough. Because I think American Christians especially, we don't pray enough. And it's a sad thing to me that we watch the news for hours and hours, and we have this, what we think is truth being put into our lives by people who could care less about us. And yet the God of heaven who loves us and who dies for us, we spend minutes with a day. You see, as claimed people, we must get into the habit of praying for people that we don't like or agree with. And this is not a, God, please change them. This is a, God, use them. We've got to get in the habit of doing that. And so, again, maybe that is the president for you. Maybe that is some senator. Maybe that is some governor. Maybe that is some boss, someone with authority, someone with leadership. But we have to be in the habit of praying for these people. You know, imagine if the people of God would get off of Facebook, would stop arguing, would stop hating, would stop bickering, and would start praying. What that would do to the church? What would that do to your psyche if you carry bitterness and anger and anxiety over these things that God has dominion and authority over? So if you're sitting here, and I don't, I don't care what side you're on, honestly, like, if you're sitting here and you're like, ah, oh, you know, I hate that the House is now Democrat, okay, well, pray for them. Pray for the people. Pray for the leaders that are now in place. If you're on the other side you hate that you know, the Senate is now still Republican, pray for them. It's very simple. We are the people of God that are claimed, and we should be praying because God has authority and dominion over all of them. And he can use every single person for his will and his purposes. You know, as claimed people, man, we've got to start acting like it. We've got to start acting like it. We've got to stop acting like the rest of the world and start acting like we are claimed people that have a God who is sovereign, all-powerful, and who claims us. And so this morning, as we finish up, I want to do just a little exercise with you and to give you a chance to pray. Um, And so I want you to put uh, that person in mind. And maybe it is a that political leader, maybe it is the president. You put that person in mind, you put that senator, you put that governor, someone that's in leadership, someone that's in authority that you don't like, all right, that you don't agree with. And first off, recognize, and you got to start here, recognize that that person is loved by God. That God says, I'm very willing to die for that person or those people. And you gotta start there, you gotta see how God sees them. And then I want you to pray for them. You take a minute or two and pray for them. And again, this is not a prayer of God, please change them. They're so wrong. But this is a prayer of God use them. Because at the end of the day, no matter where we're at or what party we're a part of, we're the people of God where God is at the top and God reigns over all of this. And so let's pray that the people that are in place, that are leaders in this country, that are leaders in this state, in this county, Let's pray that these people can be used for God and his purposes. All right, take a minute or two and do that, and then I'm going to pray us out. Father God, I know that you hear these prayers this morning. God, that you're omniscient, that you are able to hear all of these at the same time. And um, Father, forgive us for not always acting like your people. And Father, man, I, I pray that we can be people that just put you at the top. That's so very clear from our lives and our actions and our words that man, that these people believe that you have dominion and authority and sovereignty over this entire world. God, help us to focus more on the things of your will and your desires rather than maybe the things that kind of block us from that. And Father, I pray just for these leaders. I pray for everyone who has any position of authority, God. God, we've seen in the Bible, we've seen that it's very capable for you to, to work in anyone's life. God, that you can inspire, that you can nudge in any way that you want, God. And we pray that your will be done Whoever that person is, God, we pray that your will be done in their lives. Father, thank you for loving us, for showing grace. And I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. It's great to see you all. Uh, have a fantastic week, and we'll see you next time.